Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's event was recorded live at the Beak Restaurant in Sitka and was done in collaboration with the Uncommon Music Festival. The theme of tonight's event is Encounters with the Unknown. Good evening, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Ariadne Lee, and I direct the Uncommon Music Festival with uh, my colleague Nate and our wonderful musicians. And I'm so happy to be here tonight with Ellen and with Sitka Tells Tales um, and with our incredible tellers that we have lined up for tonight. If you guys are in the back, feel free to scooch on up here. Don't be shy. It's, uh, it's, we can be right up close. Um, and thanks for packing in, everyone. It's so exciting to see you all here. Uh, don't have too much to say before we get started, except thank you to a bunch of folks. Uh, thanks for everyone who gives us press, who supports us, to all the brave tellers and the performers and Raven Radio and The Beak. Is there anyone else we can think of thanking? Uh, and Ellen. And Ellen. 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 If you can make the world a little less insane, then, then I'll feel like happy and you can thank me. But I won't have anything to do with that. Um, yeah. So what's our theme? Our theme tonight is encounters with the unknown. And, you know, there's a lot of different directions you can go with that. And I think we're going to see some different ones tonight. Um, but it's, it's thinking about when you encountered something new, something different, something that you weren't, didn't encounter before. How did that change you? What, what happened, and, and what was it like? Yeah, and we're going to mix some amazing music and live stories, which are all true. And the true stories get six minutes with a seven minute, I mean, with one minute of grace. And then the music, I mean, we've got journeys of all kinds, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. We've got, we're going to sing all five of us, uh, our quartet plus our wonderful pianist. Um, we're also going to have some songs from our wonderful singers, Sylvia and Will and also me. Um, and we're going we're gonna to close you out with one of our favorite pieces, which is about an encounter with the unknown. So stay tuned for that. But there's lots of good stuff before that happens. Okay, so let's do the, so we do the first? Yeah. Cool. cool. I'm really excited that we've persuaded Freddie to tell a story. But let me introduce Freddie for you. Freddie Young is originally from Texas. She was a missionary in Peru and has lived 35 years in four different locations in Alaska. She is presently at the Pioneer, Sitka Pioneers home. And the, her piece is called A Stormy's Night Journey. And she says it's a fitting title for her story. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> I have a story about a stormy winter night. I lived on the Yukon River with my husband. We were running a truck stop up there and a restaurant, and we had a lot of uh, truckers come through who were our regular customers. We all had our handle, um, our CB handle, and, that, and mine was sweet and low. And, <laughs> I don't know about the suite, but uh, I was, you know, and <laughs> anyway, my husband one night had an appendicitis attack, and uh, we called Alaska Camp down south of us about 10 miles, and they said, we'll bring a helicopter. We'll take him into, medevac him into Fairbanks, and it was a, like 150 miles into Fairbanks, and it was 500 up. Prudhoe Bay, so we chose 
the south direction to go to Fairbanks. Um, I called Alyeska and they said, the storm is too bad. Have you looked outside? And I really hadn't. And it was, uh, the, the snow was increasing and the wind was blowing hard. The drifts were uh, rising out there and, and uh, I had no way to take him in except to get the old unreliable station wagon that we had and uncover it, uncover it from the snow and uh, brush it off. And, and uh, my daughter was 14 years old and she is a, more of a calm person. <laughs> and she uh, helped me load him into the station wagon in a sleeping bag. We got him all warm and in a, in a nice place back there and she and I took off. She was on the right-hand side, of course, and I was driving and she'd say, Mom, it's going to be okay. She's always calm and collected. And so we went down a little ways and it was, it was really bad weather. There were whiteouts and I could, couldn't see the road. It was very narrow and it was rough, but it wasn't rough after the snow covered it. And <laughs> so we, we went on down the road and on down the road and little by little inched on down and it was, it was pretty horrible. I was pretty, I was frantic. And uh, I hadn't expected to have to do this, you know. And he would say, oh, please go faster. Can't you go a little faster? <laughs> and he was in great pain. And I just, I had to go, I, I'd, I'd tell him I can't go any faster, Dad. You have to just be patient. And so we'd go on and uh, we'd get very close to the right-hand side. There was a drop-off. We were between the Brooks Range and the Alaska Range of mountains and a lot of those were pretty steep hills that we were going up and down. After a while, I think I'd gone about three quarters of the way and uh, we, I saw in my rear view mirror, I saw a big tanker, 18-wheeler coming behind me. I thought, oh no, you know, I didn't know if the road would be wide enough for both of us. But I got over as far as I could and Elisa said, Mom, you're just about to drop off this road. <laughs> And so it said, stop. And I did. I stopped right there. And the truck whizzed by us, zoomed on, on up, and left me covered with the snow that he'd left behind. And uh, he went on up a ways, and he said, sweet and low, is that you? And <laughs> I said, yes, it is. Who is this? He said, this is Cowboy. And he said, he was a big old tall trucker with a curly mustache, what do you call, handlebar mustache. And he said, I'm, I'm, uh, what's going on back there? And I, I told him the situation. So he, he said, well, I've got a solution. I, I want you to just drive behind me. I'll, I'll slow down. You drive kind of in my tracks and that way you'll be in the middle of the road all the way. I'm up higher so I can see the road and you can't. So that's the way we went the rest of the way. And I was so, so thankful to have him uh, as my guide and uh, my little girl as my co-pilot. So we, we passed, if you've been up that way, that's a haul road and you've seen it on TV, how bad it is. Some of the truckers jackknife up there and, and, the, and the record trucks come and pull them out or don't. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the road we were on. We went and pa we passed Live and Good, we passed Fox, and in a little while we saw the lights of Fairbanks. And yay, you know, 
and uh, we were very excited about that. And uh, and Cowboy said, "I'm going to turn off up here. It's a truck route, and I'm going to let you go onto the hospital. You know how to go." And I said, "Yes, I've seen it before." And uh, so he le he left me, but I was safe then into the city of Fairbanks and went on to the hospital and, and he had called ahead, fortunately, and told them that there was an emergency coming. And uh, we got him in, got George into the hospital and uh, they operated as quickly as they could and he was in recovery within two hours. Thank you for listening. <laughs>you off with uh the piece that kind of uh inspired me to well inspired this event and made me think i gotta work with we gotta work with sicka tells tales it's called storyteller um and it is a setting of a poem by ishmael angaluk hope um ishmael hope that we uh that we commissioned this year we uh, we fell in love with this poem, and he'd reached out to us already, and he was willing to work with us. And we uh, and Brittany Boykin wrote us this piece on his words, and we just love it a lot, and we hope you do too.
right now we are ready for our second storyteller, who is Simon. And Simon is an educator and a newly minted family man. He has lived in Sitka for the last couple of years, and he has lived in Alaska since 2015. So the story that he is going to be telling today is titled New Beginnings. Thank you very much. Um, Ellen asked me to uh, tell the story like, like 24 hours ago or something, so <laughs> it's a little rough. Um, but it started with a pregnancy test um, and um, actually kind of an argument while the pregnancy test was happening. Something like, oh, I'll never get pregnant. And like, well, you know, give it a try. And then kept kind of going back and forth. And then after a while, the, the minus sign that was on the pregnancy test kind of slowly faded into a plus sign. And at that point, it became uh, fairly obvious what, what, what we are embarking upon. Um, so if you would fast forward about nine months, eight and a half months or so, um, we're at a dinner party at our house. Um, and at that point, the uh, contractions had started, although I think um, for Mackenzie, it was like cramps, um, is the way she described it. And um, as the father, I mean, there's not really much you can do in some point, really, besides just hanging out, being supportive. And um, after a while, the dinner guests decided that it was probably a good, good time to leave um, as the contractions got closer and closer to each other. Um, and around that time, I was also uh, grabbing the um, birth partner book for the first time <laughs> and flipping through the pages and trying to find out, you know, where, like, oh, how many contractions between when to go to the hospital and... And meanwhile, she's kind of, you know, starting to scream on the bed next to me. Like, All right, we'll figure this out, you know. And then <laughs> um, after, after a certain point, um, it, it was, uh, I deemed it was probably time. Um, so we all got in the car and, and drove on over to the hospital. And, um, and then the, the marathon really, really began. And it's interesting, as, as from, from the father's perspective, um, you're just basically feeling rather helpless it's like seeing the person who you love the most in the world going through like so much pain and to such an incredible extent i've never seen before um and at the same time all you can really do is just hold her hand and say it's okay we're gonna get through this like breathe and kind of some pretty generic words but it's basically like you have like you don't have any control you're just kind of riding it out <laughs> um and, and that's what, what we went through for like 16 hours, which apparently is pretty normal. Um, and um, yeah, so then we got to that point where, uh, where the, the head was starting to crown. And, um, and then, then reality does this really weird thing where it kind of like slows down and speeds up at the same time. Um, the, the closest way I can kind of even describe the way that um, this... I guess a uh, fracture in reality, it's like tear in reality happens is maybe in a traumatic event or something like that that might happen in your life where, where time just starts operating really differently um, to points where, where it just becomes more dense, I guess, in some ways. And, and you know, my jaw was completely open. I don't remember any of this in pictures after <laughs> my jaw just being completely open. Um, you almost like get 
tunnel vision in some ways, like whatever happens around you doesn't really matter. Um, you know, like sounds don't really matter as much anymore. Things start moving in slow motion as um, this like most important and like monumental moment of my life kind of like snaps in this as, as she kind of came into my arms and I caught her and then things started to like kind of like go in reverse after that things started to speed up a little bit more and no longer became slow motion and um and it was just like absolutely breathtaking um and in in and in this moment you're also or maybe a little after there's this point of reflection of realizing that you know my parents did the same thing for me and everything I'm just about to embark on like they've done for me and their parents did for them and and it really put me in a completely new like paradigm of existence um, that I think this story is trying to convey, which I don't think words are actually capable of doing. Um, so that, I think, would be a, a journey into the unknown, which I still am embarking upon three months later. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> The next storyteller is Mireya. Um, they are a nonfiction artist and storyteller interested in exploring coloniality, gender, land, diaspora, and queerness. They usually work with film, but sometimes they try playing with written and spoken words. The story they are telling tonight is currently untitled, but could be titled A Hairy Situation. <laughs> Hi, I'm back. It's me. <laughs> so this story takes place in 2007, I think. I'm about 14 years old. I'm towards the end of middle school. I'm in Oregon, and it's either spring or fall. Honestly, I don't remember. But this day, I'm so excited because after years of asking and asking and asking, my parents finally said yes to me getting a haircut. And you know, I'm, I'm, that sounds kind of weird. Like I'm 14 and I haven't had a haircut. But honestly, my hair at this point was down to my knees, like down to my knees. And I was just like, okay, I convinced my parents. I was like, I'm gonna cut off 12 inches and I'm gonna donate it. So I set up a, somebody sets up a chair in the backyard. Somebody finds some scissors. I don't know where the scissors were from. I think they're the ones my dad used to like trim his beard. Um, and like the whole family's in the backyard. It's like me, it's my sister, it's my dad, it's my mom. And I measure the 12 inches, I tie up my hair, I braid it and I tell my dad where to chop it off. So I'm like calm and I'm sitting and I'm just waiting for my dad to like chop at it, go at it. And I feel the scissors kind of touch my hair and I feel him kind of struggling against the braid and I feel my body tense and I start breathing harder kind of like I am right now and um I feel tears in my eyes and I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna cry what am I doing and I I feel my dad finish the shop and my hair falls loose and it feels lighter and I kind of freeze for a second at this point, my dad tries to hand me the disembodied braid and I kind of panic 
and I stand up from the chair and I do a couple of laps in the backyard and I'm still crying and I'm panicking and I'm mourning and I'm like, oh my gosh. And you know, like thinking back, my hair went from my knees to my waist. So it's still really long, but it's, I had never had a haircut. Um, eventually I come down, everybody's like, okay, it happened. I like put the braid in the mail, I send it off. I get a little card that says like, thank you. And I really hope that that hair went to somebody who needed it. Um, and since then it's been, how many years has it been? Like 10, 11, I've cut my hair a couple of times, 10 inches here, 12 inches there. And every time I cut it, when I do the big chops, I ask my partner, a really close friend, my family, I ask somebody I love to do the big chop. And I almost always try to donate it. At least that's always a plan. Um, but over the last couple of years, I've been thinking what this means to me. Like sometimes I'm tempted to look a little bit more gay, you know, like sometimes people can't tell I'm gay. So I want to look a little bit more gay. So I'm like, maybe I should like dye it pink or I should dye it white, or maybe I should like cut it really short. Um, and then I have like this ex existential crisis and they're like, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do anything to it. And I just love it. And I'm thinking like, maybe my dad convinced me that long hair looks beautiful on a woman. And then I'm like, dad, you know, binary gender doesn't exist. And like, I'm not actually a woman. Um, and then I think to my grandma and how my grandma died at like 90 something and she still had this thick braid like down to the middle of her back. And maybe I'm like, maybe I want to die that old with such a big braid and have that memory and that those memories still with me. So I remember one time I was like panicking and I went to like this professor who's also gay and she's like, you know, you don't have to cut your hair to embody your gender and embody your queerness. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And she was like, you know, maybe some of your ancestors had long hair and they were women. Maybe some of your ancestors had long hair and they were men and they were celebrated and they were loved. And that hair meant different things to them and to their community. So since then, I'm like, yeah, you know, sometimes I get that urge to like be like very visibly queer or like experiment with my hair or sometimes I get into depression bouts and I'm like I need to change something and that something is my hair but usually I don't and um so I just love this thing that's on my head these little dead tendrils of keratin um so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go back home tonight and I'm gonna braid this and I'm gonna love it and I'm gonna um kind of always reminds me of like what I've been through in life you know like this is the oldest thing on my body um so yeah, I just encourage you to really look around you, um, touch your hair a little bit if you have any, and really love your body in those ways. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
the end of the dream, I am deep in dark water and there are tendrils wrapped around my body so that I cannot move. And I look back to shoreline and I realize I don't have the energy to make it back. And so I let myself slip below the surface and I'm in endless darkness, but I can breathe here. And I push my arms to the surface and I can feel light on my skin. And then I tell myself, you can do it. And I push my face through the surface and my eyes are closed, but I can feel sunlight, warm and delicious. This story begins three years ago. We had a friend who lived here in Sitka, invited us to come stay in his house while he went traveling. And so we came and we were excited to come, but we had a rough landing. When we got here, it was really clear to us immediately that this was not our home. We didn't have the connection to the land that we were yearning for and thought we would have. There was a kayak on the property and my husband started taking it out on the water regularly. He loved water, that was his home. He grew up swimming in creeks and rivers and jumping off waterfalls and bridges. And so he went out there often just to soothe this ache that we were both experiencing. We were only here for four months, but in those last few weeks, our hearts were heavy. We cried often and held each other and tried to figure out how we were going to stay here or how we were going to leave. We just felt so scared and disoriented. When Jesse got emotional, he would take himself for a walk. And so one night after one of these cryings and holding one another, he went for a walk and I watched as he walked up the driveway in the dark. And I called a friend and I cried and then I went to bed. I was jolted awake in the morning with the very clear knowing that he was not in bed. And I thought he must have come home and fallen asleep in the next room watching a TV show, but he wasn't there. And I thought he must have gotten up early. He's making breakfast, but he wasn't downstairs and he wasn't on the porch or in the shed or at the shoreline. But I found myself walking down to the water anyway and that's when I realized the kayak was gone. In that moment, it was like everything I knew and everything I was became totally untethered and lifted just slightly above reality, but enough to be free of the weight of it. I had this knowing, this understanding he must have come home after the walk and took the kayak out at night because that's where he loved to be. And I also had this sense that he was probably gone. It wasn't that I accepted or resisted that knowing, it was just that I held it and for one moment, it was free of the weight of what that really meant. And then it dropped 
and the panic hit and the sheer terrible longing to find him. It's a blur. It was calls to search and rescue and the Coast Guard and calls to friends and watching from the kitchen window for hours while divers went below and surfaced over and over because I was told most kayak accidents happen near and ashore. It's hard to describe that kind of waiting. It is part white searing terror and part endless empty ache. They call it lost at sea. The truth is I will never know what really happened that night. That is an unknown that I have looked into that I don't get to have an answer to. I went home and I, I let grief wrap her tendrils around me and pull me under. I let myself be destroyed by grief. And it made sense. Of course, I lost the person I loved. Of course, I am going to let this wreck me. But I also learned that grief isn't just about sorrow. I also know the deepest parts of my heart now. And I know something about how to make meaning in the face of difficult experiences. Before I came back, I thought I was gonna to need to go back to that shoreline, the place where I waited and cried and screamed as though there was something left for me to do there. But I really understand now that I'm back here that I'm bringing this grief back to the place where it began. I am bringing this story home so that it can be put to rest. This is me pushing through the endless darkness of grief into the light and into what is possible when I say the end. Thank you. songs. Um, two, the first two are by um, an American composer named Eleanor Everest Freer. Um, she lived from kind of the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, um, was based in Chicago, um, and uh, sort of most notably later in life dedicated herself to um, an, a project called the Opera in Our Language Foundation. Um, which was um, a Chicago organization dedicated to performing opera in English. She was herself trained as a singer. And I was saying to Ariadne, like, there's something really... So, like, the awesome thing about this festival is that, you know, I don't honestly, in my professional life, get to sing music written by women very often. And I'm always singing music written for my female voice by a man. And it's really cool to find this this repertoire that's written by someone who like has an, an inside experience of of what it's like to have 
a, a woman's voice. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was one thing I wanted to say. Um, in terms of like storytelling and encounters with the unknown, I would say that all three of these pieces are um, are about like a sublime experience of of love in nature and like finding the sublime in details of nature. Um, so I think we're gonna we're gonna perform the first two as a set without a break in between, and then we'll take a little like reset before the before the last one, which is in a little bit of a different idiom. <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little, a little different. Just a little.
that was When Lost in the Forest by Joel Wallach, performed by the Uncommon Music Festival. The text is by David Wagoner. You have been told that life is Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. The theme of tonight's show was Encounters with the Unknown, and thank you to our storytellers this evening, Freddie, Simon G., Maria, Simon, and to the performers of the Uncommon Music Festival. Thank you also to Raven Radio and Beak Restaurant. Your hosts this evening were Ellen Frankenstein and Ariadne Lee. To find out more about Sitka Tells Tales, you can visit artchangeinc.org. And to learn more about the Uncommon Music Festival, you can visit uncommonmusicfest.org. This audio program was made in collaboration with Art Change Inc. and Raven Radio.